Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. Did you know that ATS 2020 Virtual is available on demand through November 10th? That's right, from now through November 10th, you can gain access to all of the fantastic content from ATS 2020. Featuring scientific sessions, e-posters, a vibrant exhibit hall and industry sessions, specialty events, and unique networking opportunities, our conference remains the event where today's science meets tomorrow's care. You can learn more about ATS 2020 and register for online access by visiting the link in today's show notes or by going to www.virtual.thoracic.org. That's virtual.thoracic.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS Section on Medical Education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, a pulmonary critical care attending at New York University and associate program director there. And today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Jess Mandel on his recent ATS Scholar Perspectives article entitled Career Development Strategies for the Clinical Educator. Dr. Mandel is a full professor and the division chief of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine and Vice Chair for Education in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. He's authored multiple textbooks and a number of educationally relevant scholarly articles. Dr. Mandel, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I think your article is something that's gonna really resonate with a lot of both trainees and faculty who consider themselves of the clinician educator mold. So let's just uh, dive right in. So first question I have is, can you provide us with a little bit of background for your paper? Tell us a little bit about the prior philosophies, the traditional model of academic effort for faculty. Yeah, it was very interesting when uh, back in the mythological days of the giants that we all sort of hear about, but sort of in the, in the uh, 20th century, sort of up till about 1970, the real model was this triple threat model that we, we talk about. And you know, before you think that everyone was 20 feet tall in the days of the Giants, the, the, the playing field was very, very different then. Um, obviously, clinical medicine had less to it than it does now um, in terms of the scientific underpinnings, in terms of the therapeutic armamentarium. Education was looked at, I think, much more um, simply than it is now. And research was very, very different. It tended to be um, essentially clinicians doing uh, clinical research um, with methods that were more primitive than, than is the case now. So essentially you had folks who the cornerstone of it was their clinical expertise. That was the basis of why they were respected and it was felt that if you were really smart and you were a great clinician, you should be able to be a great teacher. You had all this knowledge to um, pass on and um, you know, the, there was no up to date, there was no whipping out your cell phone to get the answer to things. Um, these people were it. They were really critical in terms of transmitting knowledge and, and teaching others. So that the, the knowledge base was key. Likewise, um, a lot of the research really came from the area of clinical expertise that these people built. If they built a um, clinic full of folks with hemophilia, um, they're clinical research, they, they would have clinical insights as a result of that, they would do research based on that population as well. So it, it sort of hung together in that triple threat model. Right, so being a content expert allowed you then to you know, become a better researcher as well as a better teacher uh, in, that, in that armamentarium. Right. And you know, what do you think were the major influencers that caused this paradigm to change, to shift? I think it was a couple of things. I think the first chronologically was when the demands of research really became different than they had been. So rather it being something that could be conducted by one person through chart review, through examination of patients in the stream of clinical activity, um, research became more complicated, it became more basic, and it began to require um, really much more um, time on task to be successful at it. And certainly the way research was funded began to change. Uh, previously, it had been funded by sort of overflow of cash from the clinical mission, and now it, it really funded by extramural agencies in a way that required 
um, focus and, and demonstration of results in, in a different way. And so the first of the three missions to really peel off was this um, re research mission. Um, and we began to see a, a sort of divide really in the 70s, 80s, 90s um, from those faculty who were more focused on patient care and those who were more focused on research with sharing of the educational mission in different ways between them. Hmm. So the fun funding differences, the complexity of biomedical research, and uh, yeah. I, and then one thing I'm thinking about now is this, you know, division dichotomy when people say to me that they are a clinician educator, a lot of times, you know, when we delve further, what they really mean is that they don't want to engage in kind of the basic science or the physician scientist role. And so that becomes the default position. And so how do we broadly define what it is to be a clinician educator? Right, and that, that's an excellent question because um, when I talk to people about this, sometimes, as you say, it's clear we're not talking about exactly the same thing. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the the research mission was the first to sort of complexify, but the clinical missions and the educational missions caught up um, within a decade or two after that. So, you know, to be a clinical attending in the 1970s was so different than now, right? You could take anyone from any medical subspecialty, they would attend on general medicine, um, the requirements for oversight, for um, billing, for directing traffic were almost non-existent um, compared to what we deal with now, where we're just trying to really um, practice at a very high level of quality um, and at, at a very high level of efficiency. And I think health systems became aware of this really in the 80s and 90s is you didn't want someone who attends two months a year to sort of venture out of the lab, not really know how to do that because it hurts, it has the potential to hurt the hospital's quality metrics, efficiency metrics, and they started demanding a more professionalized clinical staff. At the same time, um, I think the way we began to think about teaching and adult learning became much more um, complex, or at least some of that theory began to diffuse into the, um, into the medical uh, universe that, that we inhabit. So prior to that, it was much more an apprenticeship model. Go work with this person. She's great. She knows a lot. Just follow her around and you're going to get smart. You know, that, that it wasn't really, in, a lot of the teaching was a lot less intentional than the expectation becomes now. So as you say, you know, clinician educators, they're really focused on um, operating within that clinical mission at a very high level of, of quality. And then within it, really teaching the, the learners around them, whether it's medical students, residents, fellows, other physicians, um, uh, really teaching them at a, at a very high level as well. And so that really requires teaching skills. It requires clinical skills. Yeah, you highlight some great points there in terms of the change in paradigm of not just the, the change in complexity of biomedical research, but also the changing complexity of clinical care, the uh, teaching and education kind of seeping in as well. And so different kind of time constraints, you know, to have time to be right. able to do all these things. And then, uh, and then in your kind of perspective, you advocate for four main areas of development for a successful clinician educator, uh, clinical expertise, teaching expertise, meaningful scholarship, and administrative competence as well. And so let's, let's try and delve into all of these uh, four categories uh, sequentially. So can you elaborate a little bit on the first of these areas, the concept of clinical expertise? Sure. So I think in some ways in academic medicine, we were a little late to the party in terms of faculty development around teaching. And a lot of the spotlight justifiably has been on that um, for the past several decades. But I think we don't, in order to teach, you need the skills to teach, but you also do need the, the, the knowledge base and the experience base um, to do that. And I think, some of my best mentors early on really made this point to me, and I think it was very important that you can be the the world's greatest pedagog. You know, uh, your pedagogy can be amazing. You can have amazing teaching skills, but there still has to be there. There, you have to have knowledge and perspectives that people want to get across. And so, um, you know, to be a great clinician educator, it's not enough just to have the clinical piece is not enough just to have the educator piece. You really need, you really need both of those. So on the clinical side, um, 
you know, people say, well, how do I, how do I do that? How do you stay great clinically? And I think um, like a lot of things in life, it's, it's about staying in the game. It's about not letting your intellectually development really hit an inflection point when you finish your training. To stay as actively engaged as you are as an attending as you were when you were a resident and you were going to report every day and you were going to noon conference and you were reading the journals. You need to keep doing that. You need to keep actually reading the journals. You need to um, stay on top of what are the points in, the, in your field that are um, areas of controversy, areas of progress. How are the key leaders looking at new articles? How are, and, and really staying engaged in that. So I think um, it's something that all of us can do, but it's something that as we get busier in our lives at the office and our lives outside the office, it's easy for that to slip away and we can't let that happen. Um, I think you were talking about the, you know, the, the idea that there has to be some, some substance behind the style that you need to be able to have right. something that you can actually teach about is right. the, one part of it. And then um, the other was kind of some practical methodology of how you get, become better. I love the idea that, that you have to continue that same fervor that you utilized you know, during training phase in, right. in afterwards as well, not resting on your laurels, so to speak. And, uh, you know, how important is it to really have like a kind of topical niche? You know, is, is that necessary? Do you need to become like the kind of institutional local expert in something, some area, sarcoidosis, asthma, yeah. something? I, I do think it's helpful. It's not absolutely essential, but I think it's helpful and it gets into you know, the sort of fast and slow thinking that people tend to think in terms of shorthand frequently. And if there is a niche that is not being filled, and that is true in every pulmonary division in every place in the country, um, there's areas of relative lack of involvement. And it's very easy as a young person to show up and say, you know what, all these patients, no one knows what to do with, or no one really wants to take care of, send them to me. Um, so here at UCSD, we had a young faculty member really jump into um, neuromuscular disease in a big way. And now we need to get a second person. We need to you know, get additional folks. The neurologists want to have clinic jointly. Um, and we've seen that in other areas as, as well. Um, it, it, so you can jump into an area no one's doing. You can get involved in a bigger area, asthma, COPD, but really have a, a, a niche there. You know. Um, because whenever people are thinking of who do we want to teach locally, um, you want them to think of you. Um, for a generation of scholarship, it's easier if you have a niche than as a junior person to say, you know what, I'm going to write the key article on preoperative assessment. Um, you may be able to do that, but it's a harder jump in a field that a lot of people have, have sort of ownership in. So um, I think it's better to start small and you can expand from there. And frequently, like a lot of things when you're starting out, you don't know the fish hook that's gonna hook the fish. It's acceptable to be doing more than one thing. Don't you know, go all in on one, but have a general pulmonary presence, but also have a you know, presence in arteriovenous malformations, whatever it is, you know, sarcoidosis, things of that sort that allow you to um, have, a, have a greater depth there and, and it leads to more teaching opportunities and it's helpful clinically as well. Great points. Um, and what do you think about in terms of the importance of cultivating that kind of clinical reputation locally, regionally, nationally? Is that of, of benefit? Is that something that a pathway that uh, people should be seeking? A absolutely. I mean, if you think about how we educate ourselves clinically, we teach each other. I mean, that's the way it is, we publish, but it's more than that, that we know that when we go to the ATS meeting, it's incredibly rich because of the people who are there that you talk to and you listen to and all of those kinds of things. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Woody Weiss, told me early on because I was invited to give some kind of talk and I, you know, Woody, I don't really have that much expertise in this. And he said, you know, the definition of expertise is having a uh, PowerPoint on the subject, you know, and, and so I think particularly when you're starting out, it's important to not uh, self-censor yourself, to not um, turn down opportunities and say, well, I'm really, you know, I'm not senior enough to do that. You have to do your homework. You have to really um, 
you know, be on top of that literature. You need to talk to other people, but you really should actively seek opportunities regionally um, and nationally in order to, um, you know, cement your reputation. And the other thing that I think is important to know is these things cascade. So if you write a great review article on something, all of a sudden people are coming to you to write book chapters. They're coming to you to give talks nationally. And all of a sudden you've given three talks and published that you actually kind of are an expert. Um, so it, these things are tend not to be one-offs, but they're important in terms of building momentum for one's um, academic career. Fantastic. I think you know the, the concept of these downstream effects of putting yourself out there and then networking, talking, bouncing ideas off, and it spills into other areas like research and, and other things as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot of trainees graduate with some sort of fundamental baseline level of competency as a clinician. So you talked about you know, reading journal articles to stay up to speed on what's happening and the latest, greatest things. But what are some other ways by which kind of aspiring clinical educators can advance their clinical competency towards that expertise phase or level? Yeah. Um, I think, again, that sense of the local landscape is, is, is sort of key and looking for opportunities and, and really continuing to learn. I think that's part of a self-reinforcing cycle. We're all in academics because we love learning. We loved it when we were medical students, we loved it when we were residents. And it's important to fashion a career where that continues, where our intellectual curiosity, our intellectual rigor can really, um, you know, be, uh, be nourished in terms of that. I think uh, other ways to, um, to build one's clinical skills is um, humility and intellectual honesty, I think, to know where our strengths are, where they are less strong. So as an example, I would say when I finished fellowship, I think my physical exam skills were okay, but they were not great. Um, I, you know, made myself sign up to teach physical exam every time I, I can. I still do that um, because each time I do that, the night before I'm rereading my physical exam book, I am refreshing my memory, I'm getting better at it. Obviously, I want to learn from other people and do things like that, but um, in some ways, um, putting yourself in situations that are going to force you to continue to learn and to stretch and to, to, to build your skills. Again, talking about understanding yourself, your own deficits and honest accounting that that therefore then you can actually build upon and prove that right. um, a lot of self-directed learning as well. And uh, you know, good points. So the next topical domain that you detail is teaching expertise. Yes. Yes, so uh, you cannot be a successful clinician educator without being a good teacher. And some elements of teaching are intuitive and sort of self-taught um, and sort of come with differing amounts of ease depending on our personalities and how outgoing and funny and whatever else um, you know we are. But this is a, an area in which I think the science has evolved enormously in the last 40 or 50 years. As I say, it used to be this apprenticeship model where um, you just had to do a good job yourself. You didn't really need to talk to the person following you around. You didn't need to do that much. That just being in the aura was thought that it was going to make you better. And there's some truth to that. You have to know what good is. And you know what good is by being around people who you know, are, are good. Um, but teaching is a lot more than that. And I think, um, you know, now there are opportunities for aspiring clinic, clinician educators to really um, learn skills in terms of their teaching that, that um, benefit them throughout their career. I think we do a lot of different types of teaching, right? We do teaching in the flow of clinical activity, which is a very different skill set than large lecture teaching, which is different than small group teaching. Um, and I say, you know, again, in my professional lifetime, I think that the dissemination of these skills and this knowledge set has gotten so much better. So most institutions have um, faculty development programs that are quite good and are relatively underattended. Um, they're attended by the people who least need them, who just love talking about teaching because they're awesome teachers already. Um, but it's important all of us take advantage of those because there's never, you know, there, there's no one who can't get better in that, in that regard. There's sort of extramural opportunities, Harvard, Macy, Stanford, et cetera, that have terrific programs. 
Um, the ATS annual meeting really has a lot of opportunities now. The section in medical education at the ATS is fantastic and put on um, things of the highest opportunity um, there as, as well. And then part of it, and one of the things we're trying to do at UCSD is really have more um, peer feedback. So one of the things I love to do whenever I'm a visiting professor is, can I go on ICU rounds with you? Because I learn about their ICU and there's always good ideas that um, you know, I can bring back. But more importantly, I love watching someone do the same job that I do and I always learn 100%. And we've started doing it among our own people. So one of the nice, nice things about the COVID-19 epidemic is we just have more people and more teams in the ICU. So there's more crosstalk. And you know, seeing some of the people in my division, I knew they were fantastic, but to really see them run rounds and you know, do a chalk talk and things like that, man, that doesn't get any better than that. So um, I think there's, there's opportunities of a variety of structure and in, in different sort of venues. But, you know, all I can say is, man, that stuff works. Um, if your evaluations are not being hit out of the park, or even if they are, it's really important to continue to, um, to, to, to do those sessions, to seek feedback from your learners, um, and to continue to try to improve in that, in that regard. Yeah. Um few thoughts in, in terms of everything you said, they're great points again, is that, you know, so for us, we have a E4E program, a year long education for educators program, where we do kind of both in the simulation setting and then give feedback mm -hmm. on our that setting, but we also in rounds, and we have both uh, peer uh, feedback as well, where people will come to our rounds, watch us and give us feedback after the fact as well. And so they're great opportunities for, educational innovations in the right. real world workplace setting as well as even in simulation and other things. And, uh, and then the other thing is getting buy-in from everybody, not just the people who right. are committed to that, that pathway. Um, so I think it's a great point. And as a sociologist um, once said to me, being a teacher is kind of like being a parent, like everyone thinks they're pretty good at it, um, whether they are or not. So I think getting the, the buy-in is not going to happen by saying you, 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 and you are not great. Go to this thing. Um, the way it happens is when there's a culture of quality and a culture of excellence around it. And, you know, we try to send the message that we want to be as um, outstanding as we can in all of our missions. You know, we would never do research in a sloppy way. Um, you shouldn't show up for teaching without a plan and a thoughtful approach to it either. It's sort of the same thing that you just don't present yourself in, in that sort of fashion. And you touched upon the concept of formal coursework as well. So I happen mm -hmm. to be doing a uh, master's in health profession education yeah. and really been tremendous. I mean, I've gained a ton of knowledge in terms of education, educational practices, but it's also shifted kind of my mindset. But at the same time, you know, not everybody has that ability in terms of time and then the cost. Right. Yeah, no, I think um, graduate degrees related to education are fantastic. And I think they help you um, in a mix of ways, both with the scholarship portion that, you know, we'll perhaps talk about, um, but also with the sort of boots on the ground. And um, again, we're sort of in our own bubble in terms of medicine. There's a huge, huge literature on education. Um, and, you know, if you want to be a high school teacher, you actually have to be taught how to be a teacher. If you wanna be a med school teacher, you don't really have to do that. And that's kind of weird, right? Um, we really want to take advantage of those opportunities. And, and um, absolutely, if one can get advanced degrees, I, I do think it's helpful. Um, but I want people to understand there's a lot of other levels and other options short of that that I think um, are very helpful as well. In terms of teaching, do you, is it viewed differently to teach at different learner groups? So UME level, GME level, CME level. I've had faculty, junior faculty ask me, it, you know, should I focus on a particular learner level? Is it, are any particular levels more seen better, you know, by kind of institutionally to teach? So excellent question. And it probably depends a little bit on the institution. I think because the medical schools tend to handle the promotion, they like seeing numbered courses in the medical school on your CV. So you should at least do some of that. But in general, my advice to people is to 
do some of everything. And part of it is because as a clinician educator, you want to be comfortable in those venues. You don't know when opportunities are going to open. It might be as a med school course director, but it might be as an associate program director in the residency or you know, in the fellowship. So you want to be well regarded in all of those areas so that when opportunities for educational leadership arise, you have credentials and you're known and people say this person knows what good is, you know. Yeah, that's great points to be opportunistic with that and, see, and also to see what your interests are. You know, if you may gravitate right. as you start to do one or the other, that you enjoy one uh, more than, than others as well. Um, you know, I think this is probably a good uh, time to kind of discuss the concept of mentorship. And I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of the importance of having a mentor through this process, as well as the importance of you yourself as a clinical educator becoming a mentor as well. Yeah. I think no matter what you want to do in life, mentorship is, is hugely important. And, um, you know, I think about this in a variety of ways. As, as a division chief, as someone who's an associate dean, you, you always want to have mentorship programs. You want to assign mentors um, and make sure no one falls through the cracks. I think that's very important. However, when most of us think about our most important mentors, they weren't assigned. They sort of happened in the course of, Thing, someone you worked with who you sort of resonated with and went with and that relationship sort of built out of that. So I think you want a belt and suspenders approach where you have a structure that like you are going to get mentored one way or another. No one is going to leave here and say, I never got advice. I never got mentorship. At the same time, you don't want to be limited just to that assigned sort of area. Um, you know, I think a good start is to look around and say, who, whose job do I like? Whose job and career do I want mind to be kind of like. And it's usually people who are doing things that you think is, are fun, you know, that you, you enjoy um, and they're good at it and they take joy in it, you know, and this, and this kind of thing. And so I think it's, it's very important to have those, um, those kind of relationships and those discussions. I think the problem we have as clinician educators is um, no two of us have gone the exact same pathway. That is, I think you call the opportunistic to some degree, and it's true. It's sort of dependent a little bit on what opportunities open up locally, and, and it's, it's unpredictable. And I think as incredibly hard as it is to build a research career, um, and it is incredibly hard, and, and um, you know, I have enormous respect for people who do it, um, there is a roadmap. It's a hard roadmap, but everyone knows what it is. You know, do a T32, do a, get a K award, get an R get an R01 and, you know, sort of go from there. And, and while those things are really, really hard, everyone knows what you need to be doing. And I think a lot of the mentorship and discussion that I have with people ha is that you have to be comfortable to some degree with um, a little serendipity in your life and in your career. And that may mean, you know, times when huge doors open, but there may be brief times when doors seem to close a little bit and um, figuring out how to navigate that make sense of that as well. Um, but I think, you know, mentors have many roles. I think they can advise in terms of skill acquisition. They can give personalized advice about things. I think a lot of it is moral support. I mean, I, I you know, decades later, I can remember conversations with specific mentors of words that I, you know, still, still live by. I think one of the most important ones was um, from Paul Bertozzi, who I had my pulmonary clinic with, who said, you know, the secret to getting ahead in academics, don't leave. It's a, it's, a, it's a war of attrition. As long as you don't get frustrated and quit, you will move ahead. And, um, you know, in, 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 there are times when everyone needs to hear that advice, you know, um, and, and other kinds of things that, that folks said as well. But I think, you know, go where the joy is, um, is important. And because that is more reliable in some ways than thinking there's going to be some big career payoff for one thing, you know, versus, versus another. So I think mentorship is important. It's important locally. Um, I think it's super important to go to national meetings and really um, network and not network in a, you know, slimy Hollywood, whatever way, but just talk to people and, you know, meet your counterparts. And um, because these are friendships in which there is no agenda, you know, and when you're talking to someone locally and I, I you know, when I'm talking to people in the division, I always make it clear, you know, I am, going to give you the advice that's best for you, even if it's the worst possible advice for the division, 
but there is that conflict, right? I try to minimize it, everything else. Someone who is a thousand miles away, who's a friend of yours, who is in a similar position, they have no conflict. They will give you, you know, advice purely that they think is good advice for you. And um, it's a different kind of relationship. So I think it's important to have mentors within. It's, it's super helpful to have mentors um, outside of your place of work as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I completely agree with everything you know that you're saying is that having both local mentors and then people outside of maybe your own division, your institution, elsewhere, peer mentorship as well. So there's not just like right. one mentor is the, the concept. Right. It's really kind of a, a mentorship group. Yeah. Right, it's sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say Frankenstein monster of mentors, but yeah, a piece of this, a piece of that. You sort of weave it together in a way to make a tapestry of, of mentorship. And frequently, if you get into a specialized educational leadership role, if you're like the internal medicine program director, no one at your institution really knows what that means. But you talk to medicine program directors elsewhere in the country, they totally know what it means. And so there's a lot of peer mentorship that occur that just isn't available in your home institution. Right, exactly. So I'm going to move towards the third domain, which is scholarship. Can you talk, yeah. to, talk to us about this? Right. So I think um, scholarship is a key part of every academic career. It is the sort of academic currency that people look at in terms of advancement, in terms of achievement. And we can, you can complain about it, you can say it's not valid, but it's, it's just important to establish oneself there. Now, it's a different set of rules for clinician educators than um, it is for people who are sort of 80% researchers. No one cares that much how much clinician educators are funded. No one expects them to pay 80% of their salary. However, small grants are important. Even if it's a $5,000 grant um, on your CV, it shows that you can compete for funding and impress people who know about your field that you're worth investing in. And likewise, in terms of, of scholarship, I think um, this is another area where in my you know, lifetime in the profession, we have moved a, a great deal. I think that the recognition and the standards are, are really, really high. Um, and we've seen new journals in the ATS and elsewhere um, you know, spring up to really recognize this and, and disseminate that scholarship. So I think it's important you know, always to think when you're dealing with learners, you know, how can I help these people? Um, but I think it's also good to ask the second question, how can I learn from these people? How can I learn from the experience? How can I share that learning with, with others and to really make that a part of um, how you think about innovation and how you think about what you do. I think it is, it's a win-win and that, that type of self-reflection makes us more self-aware, improves our level of play in terms of the educational efforts locally. Um, it helps people further away. It helps one's career from um, having that pattern of scholarship as well. Right. So really, this could, you know, go along with a lot of the different other aspects that you're engaged in and can really give you a one, a footprint that's larger, but also just make everything better, make things better for, right. you, know, you know, practically, you know, institutionally, but also, you know, adding to the literature, adding to the discussion that's occurring in this, uh, in this area. Absolutely. And I think participating in meetings, participating in um, multi-center trials, it, it starts helping in the other ways, right? You all of a sudden you have a network that makes you better, that you can um, generate ideas from talking to and, and all these kinds of things. So, um, you know, I think isolation works against us in, in many, many ways. You know, we alluded to clinically, you can atrophy, um, you can uh, become less innovative as a teacher and um, scholarship is, is by definition, you cannot be isolated and pursue scholarship. You're interacting with journals, with meetings, with people going to the microphone and asking you hard questions um, after a presentation um, and people coming up to you afterwards and complimenting you and saying, you know, I'm doing something sort of similar. Let's have coffee and let's talk. Maybe we can collaborate and all those kinds of things. Yeah, you know, that uh, scholarship allows you to interact and network with a broader community of educational scholars. And I, I felt like yeah. that terminology really resonated with me with the concept of 
that yes, this, this allows you, when you put yourself out there, put a piece out there, others who are doing something similar, you, you start contacting them, you, you're bouncing ideas off of them, and then you know, it's growing uh, as well of what, whatever you're trying to accomplish. Right. And you know, can you give us some examples of kind of meaningful scholarly activities that the clinical educator can engage in, particularly early in their career when they don't have as much experience with scholarly activities? Yeah, and I think here's an area where mentorship um, is important because the two big blocks people run into are writer's block, I hate to write, and um, statistics block. And the writing block, you, you need to, someone needs to tell you, the reason people find it hard is they expect it to be good the first time they do it. And if you take reverse psychology and say, I'm just gonna put down anything and fix it later, um, you're on the right track because greatness is achieved by revision. It's not achieved by having it come out that way the first time. And I think once you get over that, it becomes very easy to write. The second issue is statistics where people say, you know, I was not told there would be math on this exam kind of thing. And I think that's where um, mentorship is helpful. Um, it's also helpful to get some background in statistics um, at a very small level um, with the recognition that you're never going to be independent in statistics but it's just to really learn the, the language and learn very, very basic things if you're doing sort of basic um, studies around that as well. But at its most basic form, the entry level way is you have an idea, you have an innovation. We're gonna change the way we staff fellows clinic, you know, whatever it is. Um, and the, the, the most basic thing is, is do a pre and post um, evaluation. I, you know, again, the, the entry level thing would be survey, but you look for other more objective measures, you can build on that. And I think it's totally fine to get on the board um, a few times with doing that type of thing. Because again, it makes you think about the innovation differently instead of just saying, well, let's try this. You're thinking about what, am, what, what can we do to fix this? What are we looking to see? What do we want to make better? Um, it, the rigor is, is there. And then I think um, as things expand, the sophistication of, of interventions, the sophistication of things that can be studied um, starts to build from there. Um, you know, so it's like any other kind of research. You don't want to, you know, as, as occasionally medical students walk in and they say, I have this great idea for a study and they're describing like a, you know, 10 year randomized trial that would require 20,000 diabetics. And you're like, that's a great idea, but you can't do that, you know? Um, and it's sort of the same thing with, with this. You want to have, those sort of higher level pie in the sky ideas that sometimes you keep parked for a decade before an opportunity presents itself through ACP or ATS or whatever to actually, you know, bring that off the shelf and, and bring it in. But in the meantime, you know, um, take, uh, you know, bite off what you can chew and, and um, don't make the mistake of not biting off anything because it's not Nobel Prize material. Great starting with small projects, taking what you can do, and collaborating with others to help you from you right. know, designing that as well as, you know, um, so that it basically, because there are other people who've done similar things or right. methodology who could help you in just, you know, going and discussing it with them ahead of time, probably saving right. some heartache. Yeah, and that's, I think, excellent advice that, you know, for, for the love of God, talk to the statistician before you start anything, not after you've collected everything. I think, you know, that's in the same category of a mistake we've all made, sort of like when we're on psychiatry as students and we decide we're gonna use reason to address this fixed illusion this patient has had for 20 years. I'm gonna reason them out of it in two minutes. It does not work. And, you know, do you think that um, in terms of focus, should it be on more clinically relevant publications or more educationally relevant publications? Does it matter which kind of uh, bucket the people are working? I think I, ideally it should be a little of both. Um, I think you want to have a hand in, you know, again, to make your, your clinical bona fides depend a little bit on um, being a clinical expert and that requires scholarship and publication. It doesn't have to be research. It's great if it is, but it can be review articles. It can be anything that keeps you in the game. And again, um, I think when you go out for promotion, you know, your division, your department is frequently voting on you and they will understand those, you know, a review article in the Blue Journal in a way in which 
they don't know if the journal of you know medical teaching is that good is it bad, you know whatever so it's important i think to have um doesn't have to be exactly equal but to have some representation in both so let's move on to the, the fourth domain uh which involves administrative competence and i'm you know, as you elaborate, I'm also interested in, you know, your choice of the word competency as opposed to expertise yeah. in this area. <laughs> expertise would be nice, but I think we'll settle for competence a lot of times. Um, you know, I remember my son when he was like, you know, seven or something asked me like, so how did you get to be like associate dean? And I, my answer was something to the effect of the bar is set pretty low. If you answer your emails and like do what you say you're going to do, that puts you like miles ahead of many people in, in academic medicine. So um, I think, you know, to be, to be perfectly frank, um, much of what we do in medicine and in academic medicine is um, a little loose by the standards of our leaders in business um, in organizational management. It makes them crazy, right? When they look at how an academic practice is run. Um, a lot of times in education, the funding is for educational leadership more than it is for actual teaching. You know, the, you want money for teaching, you're a professor. That's, you know, that's what you do. We're not paying you more for that. Get out there and do it, you know, with some exceptions. Whereas if you're um, a program director, if you're, you know, doing something, that you, then you can actually um, start to get part of your effort funded in a way that, um, depending on the funding, sometimes it's underfunded and it, doesn't help you. Sometimes there's ways it allows you to have some set aside time that then you can actually generate scholarship. You can focus on the teaching and, and do other things. So um, it's hard to think of, um, well, well, let me put it a different way that many clinician educator careers really involve um, these funded educational leadership posts. And those require a high level of administrative follow through. I mean, you, and I've seen people run up on the rocks because that they're not staying on top of it, they're not organizing it, they're not paying attention to that kind of area. And you cannot stay successful as an educational leader in any way if you're not attentive to those things. You know, sooner or later, the ACGME is going to visit, the uh, LCME is going to visit. Um, and, you know, if you get a bucket of citations because you didn't you know, you, you forgot to have the clinical competency meeting, um, you know, once a year, uh, you're not going to stay in that job because whoever you're reporting to is judged on your performance and they need it to be good. They need to not hear of any problems in that, in that area. Um, and most of us have not run stuff a lot before you're put in these positions. So, um, you know, this is another area where I think there's a million books about leadership. I find them helpful if you're having trouble falling asleep because they are helpful in that area, but they also teach you stuff along the way. Um, but there are also many courses, seminars, again, things at many of the, the meetings in terms of leadership. And this stuff is important. Um, and again, this stuff works. And some of it, you know, like anything, seems perhaps a little out there, um, but most of it isn't. It's really, you know, sort of common sense and once you hear it, you're like, okay, that makes sense. Um, and I think it's helpful in terms of leadership. And then a lot of it is just making sure you are good at the fundamentals that, um, you know, if the second or third email arguing about something is going back and forth, meet with that person, you know, um, sit down, look them in the eye and resolve that situation. Um, you know, if you're tasked with getting a schedule out for something, don't have it come out the week before. Um, the new year starts, have it come out four months before so people can actually plan their vacations. You know, I mean, all these kinds of things. So some is common sense. Some of it requires additional training. You don't have to do an MBA, but at least, uh, you know, introduction to thinking about it. Um, but you have to do it. And I think like a lot of things in life, there are more errors of omission than commission. It's not that people are administrating badly. It's like they're not doing it enough. They're not thinking about it. They're saying, I'll get to it tomorrow night after clinic at eight at night when I'm tired and I won't really get to it, you know, instead of saying, no, I need to block off on my calendar, you know, a three hour block every Thursday afternoon or whatever it is that I'm going to just focus on this and not get distracted into anything else. Hmm. It kind of speaks to like uh, 
organizational skills, time management skills, prioritizing, prioritizing this area as well. Right. And then looking at models as well of individuals in your kind of division department who are good administrative and, and leaders and seeing yeah. how they function as well and what makes them good, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think an important part of that, again, is mentorship, because most of these jobs are there. You're not part of a team. I mean, maybe you're creating the team, but you don't have a lot of peers who you necessarily come in contact with. And so I think it's important in these administrative issues to always, um, you know, to have a sort of inner cabinet. If you have a problematic fellow, um, I don't want to be making this decision solely in terms of how to approach it. I really want the input of others. I want to make sure, you know, things are done. And, you know, the other thing, it sounds so basic, but um, all our institutions have policies on almost everything and you have to follow them. It's not like follow them if you feel like it, you have to do it and you have to insist that others do it. And people really, you know, run off course when they're not consistent about doing that. And it's a recipe for disaster. Now, we've talked about these four different domains and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of part of what I'm wondering is how, how is it, how do you balance all these four different areas? You know, is it too much to engage in all four of these domains simultaneously? You know, does uh, spending time becoming a clinical expert take away time from becoming an educational expert? Or does it- Yeah, there's, in, in leadership? there's always, yeah, there's always a little bit of a, it, things like life in general, things are never perfectly in balance. Um, but, you know, again, I think humility and intellectual honesty are important because you may need very little help in one or two of these areas and others may be very foreign for you. It may be that clinical part's fine, the teaching part's great, um, but the administrative and the scholarship don't come easy. And sometimes, you know, psychologically, it's easy to just not pay attention to those as much and focus on what you're already good at and you get rewards from. But you need to be honest enough to say, you know, no, I need to kind of do the opposite, which is put more effort into the areas I need to bring up a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I'm also thinking about, you know, ways that the different domains dovetail together. Yeah. So if you, you know, the better you're getting at in terms of clinical expert, that might lead to new research projects or new positions, you know, administratively right. and so forth. So they might be areas where they're kind of dovetailing together as well. Yeah. Well, good. And now, do you find that these uh, four That's domains, right. if I put, you, put your uh, education hat on, and, uh, you know, do you find that these four domains are reflective of the patterns by which academic institutions evaluate clinician educators for advancement and promotion? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, these are very local kinds of policies and cultures around those things. Um, and I've been at different institutions and I'm struck how, how different it is. But in general, um, most places try to evaluate people in domains. They don't just look globally and say, she's doing a great job, let's promote her. They'll have some institutional criteria and they'll say, well, let's look at the teaching. Let's look at the university service. Are they on enough committees? Let's look at their, you know, their teaching evaluations as part of teaching. Let's look at their scholarship. Um, where are they publishing? Um, where are they presenting? You know, how much? Those kinds of things. Um, and let's look at their clinical skills. Are they one? you know, best doctor in Dallas and, you know, things like that. So, um, so I think most places are moving towards a more structured evaluation. And again, um, it's the responsibility of division chiefs of department chairs to really educate their faculty in terms of how this works. Um, I think if, if anyone ever gets the opportunity to be on one of these committees to review things, always take it because then, man, you really learn the rules when you're on that and you see how the sausage is made and it's very, very helpful in terms of understanding how your place works. Great. Last question I have is uh, to basically prognosticate the future. Where do you think we're headed in the future regarding the concept of, of this clinician educator role? Is it going to become hyper-focused and, and you just become, say, an educational administrator and somebody else is a clinical educator? What do you think the future holds? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I think the great thing is that um, the clinical and educational missions are incredibly core to um, academic health centers, to, um, you know, to academics in general. So there's, they're not going to be 
uh, ever thrown overboard as non-essential. They're not ever going to be replaced by computer by AI algorithms. Um, there's always going to be a, an important role for that. Um, you know, I think as, as uh, one of my former division chiefs said to me, if you want to be a clinician educator, you, you need to you need to make it rain to a certain degree in that if there, there's a more limited number of opportunities for clinician educators than someone who can bring their own funding, right? That you can hire an infinite number, limited only by space and you know other things like that. Um, but you don't really have to pay them, right? They just get your name out and make you look good. So what, what if you're a clinic, clinician educator? Well, there's a limited number of educational leadership roles and that I think makes people concerned. Um, but in my experience, things open up and good people find a way to get into the game. Um, I do think it's important, again, it speaks to um, trying to make oneself a little bit unique in the clinical sphere and in the educational sphere. Because if you show up and say, I'm a smart guy, put me in coach where you need me, yeah, there's some benefit to that. But if you say, our program in interstitial lung disease is weak and I want to start a new clinic and really build that up, that, that resonates a lot more. And likewise, in terms of, of education, if you have a niche there, if you are really knowledgeable about simulation and standardized patients, that's a different niche than saying you're really you know, knowledgeable about constructing questionnaires and can be a research resource to others on questionnaire-based research of a variety of, of types. So, um, so I think there's always gonna be a big demand. I think the onus on us as individuals is to sort of make the value preposition to um, make that clear in terms of what we bring in terms of those areas. Okay. Jess, anything else that you wanna add? Anything else that's on, on your mind in this area? I don't think so. It's great to chat with you and you know, would love to chat with you more next time we cross paths at ATS or wherever. Absolutely. Well, ATS is happening in uh, San Diego, no? Next year? <laughs> oh, let's, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, so I think that's probably a, a great place to stop. We've really enjoyed uh, having you and, and having you discuss, you know, really the past, present, and future regarding the clinical educator role um, and really providing a lot of thoughtful, practical advice on kind of career development uh, in, this, in this role, in this pathway. Uh, focused, uh, as we said, on these four different domains of clinical expertise, pedagogical expertise, scholarship, and administrative competence. So again, Dr. Mandel, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with our listeners. Thank you. Great talking to you. Take care. Um, and for, so I think this is going to be something that's going to be of, you know, a topic that's going to be of uh, a lot of interest to our listeners. And for those podcast listeners, Dr. Mandel's article on career development strategies for the clinical educator is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Until next time, stay safe and stay thirsty, my friends. Bye now.